And Ev's going to read us, uh, read us from Matthew 1. Thanks, Ev. The reading today is uh, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, and you can find it on page 783 of the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abuhud, Abuhud the father of Elikim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Ev Hall, great effort. (laughs) So I reckon put your hands together. Our Bible reader pulled out at uh, about 8.30 this morning. I rang Ev and she said, I've got this. And she had this. So uh, let us pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we love your word. We love your son. We sit under it and we ask that you speak to us now. Uh, Even the parts that are hard to relate, even the parts that are hard to read, even the parts that we're not sure where they touch us, will you touch us in Christ for your glory through them today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, uh, I wonder if you've ever noticed how there are some things in life that have or hold just no interest for you until one day it's like you're awoken from this slumber and that same thing that one day never interested you just fascinates you. Let let me give you an example. One of my brothers-in-law, I have four, but one of my brothers-in-law was telling me once that he had no interest in gardening. Life's too short. Why would you waste your time with gardening? Throw down turf. Better still, concrete over the top, paint it green, was his approach. And then he bought a house. And he was describing to me what happened. He said, Pete, I don't know what's going on with me, but all of a sudden, uh, I'm interested in how my hydrangeas are going. You know, the pH, the pH levels in the soil aren't right. And uh, 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 my lamandra, you know, they're just fabulous. Uh, particularly when it hasn't rained for ages, they still just you know, grow like anything. But don't talk to me about my fatinia. Uh, they're not flourishing. I think the soil's gone hydrophobic. And 
I remember thinking, what has happened to this bloke? And in my experience, brothers and sisters, it is exactly the same with genealogies. You see, genealogies hold almost no interest for every person under the age of 52. (laughs) Now, how do we get that number? Well, here's how. I'm 41. I have no interest in genealogies, except for this one, but no interest in genealogies. I cannot imagine having an interest in genealogies for at least a decade, but I don't want to rule out the fact that it could happen. So 52 is the number we're going to work with, all right? (laughs) And then, apparently... Genealogies have become fascinating, just so remarkably interesting. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? And and so on and so forth. Uh, We've seen this, haven't we, in the way that this has taken off with commercial websites now dedicated to helping you track down your family history, as well as TV shows both in the States and in Australia that are given over to watching other people track down their histories. It almost seems like this new thing. But of course, it's, it's not a new thing. It's a really, really old thing. And at the start of Matthew's Gospel, the first 17 verses, we find a genealogy, a story about Jesus' family history that goes way back. But you need to know that genealogies are much older than Matthew's Gospel. Uh, In the Old Testament, we see that the Jews were very interested in records of descent, in knowing who belonged where and from whose lineage someone derived. We know that this interest continued into the New Testament times beyond the church, not just in Matthew, but beyond the church, because the first century historian Josephus started his autobiography in the first century by tracing the names of his ancestors. This is what he says. He says, I cite it, that is, talking about his genealogy, as I find it recorded in the public registers. Now, the important thing to note here is that he shows us there were public registers, public histories of families which reveals widespread interest well beyond the church. My point, genealogies are not a new thing. And the thing that I think captures people about genealogies, once you get to 52 or something, is that genealogies contain two things. They contain signposts and they contain secrets. Signposts, and secrets. Signposts that tell you where you've come from. Signposts about who your ancestors may well have been. Signposts that tells you what runs through your family. Uh, the Stedmans came out on the second fleet. Irish bread, good convict stock. <laughs> now that signals something. That's a sign of something. You'll have to work out what it is. Uh, my wife Bree is a Spencer. They came out as free settlers and landed in Adelaide, where they like to prance and dance. (laughs) That is also a signpost of something, according to Bree's mother. (laughs) I'm not sure what, but it seems very important to her. Mother-in-law jokes, they're great. But, But there's secrets as well, isn't there? There's that daughter who was shipped off to England for 10 months, who came back with a child, it was like a miracle. There's that rogue great-grandson who robbed a bank and did 15 years. There's that murder somewhere back there too, but those details no one's ever been able to get to the bottom of. We're fascinated by those secrets, those details, but they often stay within the family. 
And I think that the reason people, once they hit 52 or something, end up loving genealogies and family histories is that they come to discover about themselves both signposts and secrets. Friends, today we turn to Matthew's Gospel. And if we're honest, let's be honest, we normally start reading at verse 18, don't we? Or or at least we start engaging at verse 18 because we get it. Before that, it's just a bunch of names and we know, don't we, that genealogies are dry and boring. Brothers and sisters, these first 17 verses are full of signposts and secrets. And they don't just titillate. They navigate. They guide us, they teach us, they show us what to expect, and they show us what is to come. So let's dive in. Can you have Matthew 1 open in front of you? Let's look at verse 1. Uh, Verse 1 before you is probably an introductory statement for the whole of Matthew's Gospel. It's on the screen, if you would prefer to look there. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, before we even dive into the genealogy proper, Matthew, in his first sentence, signals his direction. Matthew shows us here that in the story that is to come, all 28 chapters of it is going to be interwoven and tied in to huge key Old Testament ideas, two huge key Old Testament events, stories, people, that after they occur in the Old Testament, shape the direction of the rest of the Old Testament. Matthew gives us in the first sentence, these things are going to weave all the way through his gospel. Here's the first. We are told that the story to come is about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Now, Jews who would have been reading this would have had alarm bells go off for them as soon as they stumbled upon that word, Messiah. You see, the Messiah for a Jew was this figure, this person uh, that all Jewish people were waiting for who was coming. This Messiah was a warrior who had come, sent by God, actually anointed by God, to lead and rescue the Jewish people from slavery, the slavery they'd found themselves in. Jewish belief was that there was a Messiah And when he would come, he would put all things right. And Matthew here, verse 1, chapter 1, refers to Jesus as that Messiah. That is a signpost. Don't miss it. That's a signpost. But there's more than that. That's just the first three words there. Jesus the Messiah. Then he refers to Jesus the Messiah as the son of David. More alarm bells. More alarm bells for the first listeners to this gospel. Now, son of David was a phrase that probably also brought to mind ideas of the Messiah, but added to that, it suggested kingship. You see, David was Israel's great king. So to be called the son of David came to mean that you'd also be a king from the line of David. And by the time Matthew sat down to write his gospel, these ideas had melted into each other, the the idea of the Messiah and the son of David. They'd sort of collapsed into each other. And there was now an expectation when Matthew was written that the Messiah who was coming, this mighty warrior who would liberate Israel, would also be a conquering king from David's family line, a son of David. And Matthew confirms that by saying in verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Big signpost. Matthew then demonstrates this from verse 6 on. Have a look in your genealogy. You'll see it, verse 6 on, where he shows in Jesus' family tree the connection. He says this, verse 6, And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And on it goes. Here's the sign. Don't miss it. From the very beginning of his gospel, 
Matthew wants us to see that his story about Jesus Christ is going to reveal that there are messianic, royal, kingly roots back to King David as a central idea of all that's going to come in the next 28 chapters. Now, that is our first signpost in Jesus' genealogy. But there's another. And the second goes back a thousand years before David. It goes back to another massive figure whose shadow is still cast out over Jews today. And it is Abraham. Another huge signpost. We read this in verse 1 as well. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See that there? The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Israel. Abraham was the father of Judaism. Abraham is and was the largest figure in all of Jewish history. And Matthew, right at the start of his gospel, places a signpost here for us all to see in his family tree. This Jesus Christ who he's going to write about, this son of David, this Messianic king, is also related to, he's also the son of Israel's founding father, Abraham. And what we see in Matthew is that he starts to weave together these two massive Old Testament themes in one small little baby that's just about to be born. You see this in the genealogy 2, verse 2. Have a look at that. Verse 2 in front of you. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and so it goes on. Now, so what? what? What's the point of Matthew putting Abraham in here? What's this signpost actually revealing, pointing to? Well, for that, we actually need to understand why Abraham was so special in Israel's history. And that's because it was to Abraham that God made the most important promise in the whole Old Testament. One we find in Genesis chapter 12, a promise that goes like this, it's on the screen. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Brothers and sisters, that on the screen is the promise of the whole Old Testament. And all that comes after that promise is a fulfilment of that promise. That's the promise. And Matthew, in his genealogy, is showing us that Jesus, in some way, is going to be connected with that. So they are the two signposts, or the two we'll look at today in Matthew's genealogy, that point us forward and back and they help us navigate who Jesus is, where he's from and show us that whoever this Jesus is going to be, he's going to be deeply integrated, massively woven in with these two Old Testament themes and shadows that that hang over the whole Old Testament. But you know, in every family tree, as we said before, there's not only signposts, are there? There are also secrets. And the moment you start reading this genealogy, those familiar with ancient genealogies find something highly unusual. That is the inclusion of women. Now stay with me. That's not to say that was unheard of, but it is very strange and it is absolutely attention-grabbing. That causes the reader 
the first readers to ask the question, why would women be in here? And what we find is remarkable. We find that these four women all have secrets. You see, these are not the women you would put in your family history if you wanted to show the world how royal, pure, neat, clean, chaste and godly your family was. You want women like that? Israel had them. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, shining lights in Israel's history. We don't get any of them. What we have instead are four women, all most probably Gentiles, not Jews. And three of the four, if not four of the four, are women of dubious moral character. Okay, it's, it's getting juicy. You see what you've been skipping all these years? It's getting titillating. This is a great family history. So let's start with the first. Let's start with Tamar, most likely a Canaanite. See her in verse 3. Now you can read all about Tamar in Genesis 38. It's not pleasant reading, but it's a very interesting story. Essentially, she has not fallen pregnant with her first husband who dies. She's not fallen pregnant with her second husband. So she dresses as a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law, sleeps with him and produces two sons named in the genealogy. She does, in fact, this woman, commit incestuous adultery. That's the secret. <laughs> uh, okay, moving verse 5, we meet Rahab, the Canaanite. Now, we know all about Rahab from Joshua 2. This is the woman from Jericho uh, who helps the Israelite spies when they come in to scope out the city before Israel come to attack the city under the hand of God. You'll remember that story. So far, so good. What we sort of forget, though, is that Rahab's a prostitute. It's on the screen. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute. Really? Just drop out that one adjective house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. Now it gets controversial. We have Ruth, the Moabites, also in verse 5. Now hang on, Pete. Ruth, lovely Ruth. Well, she's great, isn't she? I mean, she's the one in the book of Ruth with the help of Naomi, her mother-in-law, seeks to secure a home and a future with Boaz. So one night, listen to how it reads, washed, perfumed and wearing her best clothes, she goes into the room of Boaz after he's finished eating and drinking and uncovers his feet and lies down in the darkness. I don't know how that sounds to you. Perhaps that sounds to you pure, romantic and appropriate. If that's you, I want to say, you know what? It may well be. The text is ambiguous on this point. This may well be completely above board, which is how most want to read it. But listen to how this section is described in the New International Commentary of the Old Testament, the stock standard conservative evangelical commentary on this. Naomi's next words are tantalisingly ambiguous and replete with suggestive sexual innuendo. The Hebrew verb used to describe the uncovering of Boaz's feet occurs primarily in expressions describing varieties of illicit sexual relations. Obviously, such associations gave it an immoral ring in Israelite ears since such behaviours were forbidden. As is well known, feet 
could be used as a euphemism for sexual organs. Exodus 4, Judges 3, 1 Samuel 24, Jude 28, Ezekiel 16. There was more, I didn't put them in. Though not demonstrable as a euphemism here, it may well have been chosen to add to the scene's sexual overtones. Don't get me wrong. I'm not here to shatter your view of this lovely lady. This could all well be above board. But the passage is at least ambiguous. But the next woman is not. The next woman's actually not even named. This is verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, which raises the question, well, who was Solomon's mother? Who was Uriah's wife? Friends, that was Bathsheba, probably a Hittite, a woman involved in one of King David's darkest moments. She's an adulterer. Uh, She sleeps with King David and then King David organises to have her husband Uriah murdered. You see, what we have in this genealogy are some very dark secrets. We actually have four shady ladies. Now, that's not to say the men in this genealogy are all above approach. They are certainly not. We have Judah, the prostitute visitor, King David, the adulterous murderer, Manasseh, perhaps the most evil king of all Israel. That's not what stands out, though. What stands out here in this family tree, written in a time of great patriarchy, is the inclusion of four women, and not just any women. Matthew chooses to incorporate four women of controversy, and at least three of them, maybe four, of ill repute. What is going on? Friends, here's the thing I'd love you to wrestle with. I I said before that genealogies have signposts and they have secrets. But this is what I think Matthew is doing for us. Matthew is showing us that the secrets are also signposts. The secrets are also signposts. They're not here for titillation. They're here for navigation. What do I mean? Matthew, in this very first section of his gospel, the boring genealogy, is brilliantly weaving the shape of what is to come. We know that what he's showing us is that Jesus is the Messiah King from the line of David. We get that. We know that he's showing us that Jesus is the son of Abraham who will come to fulfill the promises of God made to Abraham. We know that. But we're also being shown through the secrets that Jesus is the one who will come for the foreigner and for the sinner. Jesus will come for the alien and for those of ill repute. Jesus will come for the outsider and for the immoral. What we find here is that the secrets are signposts and that there is room in Jesus' family for those you would least expect. Brothers and sisters, as we start to explore Matthew's gospel together, uh, leading into Christmas this year and then in first term of 2017, this is what we're going to find. That Jesus will come with huge Old Testament shadows and promises in his background. He will come as the Messiah to rescue God's people. But not from the Romans. The Messiah will come to rescue people from sin, from their disastrous personal choices that ruin their lives, ruin their families, but cannot ruin their ability to be sought out by Jesus. 
And we'll find that Jesus comes to fulfill those promises made to Abraham as the son of Abraham. Now, I put Genesis 12, 1 to 3 up before. I want to show you just the third part I put on the screen because it makes sense now. This is what it said. It's not there. Let me tell you what it says. The third part of that promise was this. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was the promise to Abraham. Note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say all Jews on earth or all Israel. All peoples will be blessed through Abraham. That includes Canaanites and Moabites and Hittites. That includes Australians and Americans, Chinese, Iranians, Sri Lankans and Indians. Brothers and sisters, there is an international flavour in Matthew's Gospel that we are being given right up front and we're going to see it unfold from here. You see, in Jesus' family, in Jesus' royal lineage, there were both ethnics and there were both sinners. You know, in, uh, in five weeks, almost all of us here will be sitting down to a meal with our families. And as you sit around your table, there will be both signposts and there will be secrets. And as joyous as Christmas is, gathering together with large and often extended family can relive or revive difficult memories, difficult periods. In one sense... Jesus' genealogy mirrors our own experience of family. Because what Jesus' genealogy teaches us is that God doesn't stop working in messy families. God doesn't change his plans because of sinful people in our lives, in our homes. What God does is change people within messy families. God seeks out the unlikely, sinners and ethnics, and he becomes their king and their rescuer. And that is what we'll be celebrating this Christmas, brothers and sisters. God's plan of sending Jesus, born of Abraham, son of David, related to Tamar, to Rahab, to Ruth, to Bathsheba, to be God with us, you. To forgive those who repent. To restore those who seek Jesus. And that guarantees right now that God knows exactly what he's doing in your families. With the joy and the pain you feel. With the hope and the disappointment you experience with the grace and the sin that you see there, God is at work. God is weaving his plan, not in spite of the imperfection, but through it. God in Jesus Christ is with us. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that in your word we see you at work, even in the parts where we perhaps haven't seen you before. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus, planned from the beginning, as the son of David, the son of Abraham, to die on a cross and forgive us for our sin. 
Thank you that you show us in your family tree that there are sinners, that there are outsiders. Because if that is true, then surely there must be room for us. Will you help us this Christmas know that you are with us in Christ? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. There is no other name in heaven can be found Through whom we are redeemed Through whom your grace abounds No other name can save But Jesus Christ our Lord There is no other name in heaven can be found Through whom we are redeemed Through whom your grace abounds No other name can save But Jesus Christ our Lord My joy in sorrow's tears my strength to cast out fears, no other name but Jesus, Jesus. My hope in darkest night, my love in source delight, no other name but Jesus, Jesus. But Jesus crucified, no other cure for sin, but that our Savior died, no other hope we have, but that He rose again, again, my joy and sorrows is. My strength to cast out fears, no other name but Jesus, Jesus. My hope in darkest night, my broken soul's delight, no other name but Jesus,
in sorrow's tears. My strength to cast out is none other name but Jesus, Jesus. My home in darkest night, my broken soul's delight, no other name but Jesus, seated friends. We're now going to spend some time in praying to our great God and we'd love for you to join with me as we do that. Psalm 119 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Heavenly Father, this is a strange, slightly strange idea to us. We're used to talking and thinking about your word as true, correct, accurate, helpful We're used to thinking of your word as ideas and statements, not life and food. So we don't think of your word as sweet like honey, but it is. Because your word brings us life, grace and truth. Your word lifts us up when we're crushed, humbles us when we're proud, heals us when we're broken and guides us in the path of everlasting life. So Lord, hear our prayer. You are better than food. Your word tastes sweeter than honey. Your presence is more nourishing than the best meal. Lord, we need you more than we need food and life itself. Lord, please let this be the ongoing reality for our Bishop Ivan Lee and his family. We thank and praise you that the recent three-month scan showed that he is still clear of cancer. Lord, please make your word sweeter than honey to Ivan and his family that as they live with the dread of each three-month scan, not knowing whether it will show everything is clear or whether the cancer has returned, please renew each of them each morning with your love. Make your presence sweeter than life itself to them. And we pray this for the faculty and students at Moore College and YouthWorks College. Lord, please protect them against the temptation of seeing your word and the beauty of Christ as just a fact to be studied. Teach them each day that your presence is better than published papers and brilliant marks. Lord, be their centre and joy in all things. Father, we also pray for the York family who are members here at 9am. We thank you so much for their love for Jesus and the way you use them to bless so many of us. We ask that you would grant them peace and patience as they wait on news regarding whether they can stay in Australia or not with visa applications and labour agreements. Please enable them to keep on serving students here in Sydney. Please help them to remain steadfast in their love and knowledge of you despite the ongoing certainty and anxiety for the kids. Help them to continually, faithfully serve those whom you place in their paths. And Lord, for us... Let your word and your goodness be at the centre of our month of pledging. We thank you that you have made this a generous church. We thank you for your people who serve, welcome, encourage, pray and give out of a joyful response to your generosity to us in Jesus. So please guard us against those twin joy killers, pride and obligation. Protect us from thinking that we're better than others or that our giving is a burden. 
Please make our pledging a prayerful, joy-filled partnership in serving Jesus together. Lord, you are purer than the freshest snow. Your love is deeper than all the oceans. Your glory is more captivating than all the stars in the sky. Your word is more nourishing than the best meal. And your presence is better than life itself. Lord, you are the greatest treasure and prize in all the universe. So please be our treasure and joy each day. We pray this in the power of your spirit and for Jesus' glory. Amen.